If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today sees the release of the new Netflix film Munich, The Edge of War. Starring Jeremy Irons, this World War II thriller revolves around the fateful Munich Conference of 1938. And it's based on Robert Harris's 2017 historical novel, Munich. To mark its release, I spoke to Robert about reassessing Neville Chamberlain, the real history behind the conference, and what it's like seeing your book adapted for the screen. Thank you so much for joining me to speak about Munich, The Edge of War, which is the new Netflix film that's adapted from your 2017 novel, Munich. How has it been seeing your story translated onto the big screen? Oh, it's always very exciting. It's so much more glamorous um, than sitting uh, at home writing and the business of publication. It's it's been wonderful and and really enjoyable. I'm pleased with the film. And um, I think that Jeremy Irons is a sort of iconic Chamberlain. And I think he's he's sort of going to alter the, uh, the perception of Chamberlain, actually. Well, I definitely want to ask you about um, that portrayal of Chamberlain later, but to set the scene for us, the story obviously centres around the Munich Conference of September 1938. Can you set the scene for us? What was the intention of the conference and what was at stake? Well, the um, Hitler decided at uh, the beginning of the summer of 1938 that he, he gave orders that he wanted Czechoslovakia to be eradicated. It wasn't a matter of the Sudeten Germans. He wanted to take the whole state as part of his um, plans for the conquest of the East to create a new empire. The Czechoslovakian state was only about 19 years old and was guaranteed by the French 
not by the British, actually. But it was clear that if uh, Czechoslovakia was attacked, then France would be bound by treaty to go to its aid. And Britain, because of its links with France, would find itself sucked in. Uh, Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister at the time, decided that rather than sit back and do nothing, he would try and broker a peace. And, and although he was about 70 years old, rather sensationally, he decided to board an aircraft and fly and see Hitler without even telling Hitler he was on his way. Eventually, they, they didn't do that. Uh, they, he asked for an invitation, and he went to see Hitler a couple of times, once at Berchtesgaden, Hitler's house near Munich, and then again at a hotel uh, near Cologne. And um, he found out what Hitler's demands, essentially, and he thought, if these are limited to the Sudeten Germans being transferred back into Germany, then we should have peace. And he then got Mussolini to tell Hitler that the Italians would prefer it if there was a deal, and Hitler backed down. What's important in all this is to remember that Hitler wanted a war. And the, what I wanted to convey to people is that Chamberlain thwarted him. It's not quite as a lot of people imagine it. And so uh, Chamberlain flew to uh, Munich on the 29th of September and met with Hitler, Mussolini and Deladier, the French premier. The Sudeten Germans were territories were ceded to Germany. And then the following morning, Chamberlain decided he wanted to get even something more from Hitler. And the thing we most associate with Munich, actually, is the piece of paper he got Hitler to sign the next day. As, as the subtitle of this new film suggests, this was a moment in which the world teetered on the edge of war. Why did it appeal to you as a setting for a thriller novel, specifically? Well, it was incredibly dramatic, as you say. The whole world was holding its breath and watching. And in London, uh, gas masks were being distributed, slit trenches were being dug in Green Park and other parks ready for the bombing. You know, there was a great feeling of uh, terror. It's a very dramatic few days of the world teetering on the edge of war. Also, the word Munich is, and uh, and Chamberlain, they are they still resonate today. And that, I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to, to write it. I mean, you know, I do write historical fiction, and one of the reasons is not so much a kind of, you know, delight to bring the past to life, but because something in the past is still relevant today. And, and Munich is still a loaded word. And I, I, I wanted to investigate that. It struck me when I was watching this film that anybody sat at home watching it essentially is watching with the benefit of hindsight. We know what was to come. What are the challenges of creating a historical story like that and maintaining tension, for example, when we all know how it's going to end up? Well, you know, there is a school of thought uh, that drama is better if you do know the ending, so that uh, the Titanic exercises constant fascination with people. We know what's going to happen. I wrote a novel about Pompeii. I mean, you know, one knows what's going to happen. And oddly enough, waiting for it to happen and wondering who's going to survive is quite an effective drama, in fact. The ancient Greeks, it's Greek drama, Greek tragedy, where you know what's going to happen and the chorus keep telling you this is going to end disastrously. So there's no problem with that, I think. We know that war was briefly averted, and we know that in the end the whole thing falls apart. It bathes everything in a kind of ironic light as, as, as you write it. And you're right, you know, when you look at images now of the British Prime Minister standing with Hitler or inspecting an SS honour guard, one recoils. But of course, you, we do that because we know what's coming. 
and and we can't we can't look at this as it appeared at the time as a as a as a as an attempt to genuinely try and save the world from the destructive war. So our two lead characters here um, are a young English diplomat, Hugh Leggett, and his friend. Paul von Hartmann, who's on the German side of the negotiations. And through these two characters, we we see the story unfolding on both sides, um, don't we? Why was that important to you to offer both the German and an English perspective? Well, I long wanted to write a novel about Munich and couldn't. First of all, I thought, well, could I write it from Chamberlain's point of view? No, that's too boring. Um, Could I write it from the point of view of an English civil servant who travelled with him to Munich on his plane? That was possible, especially if this man had a crisis in his private life that would somehow be echoed by by the international crisis. But again, it didn't quite work. And then Joachim Fess, the historian, who was the ghostwriter for Albert Speer on Speer's memoirs inside the Third Reich, he published the diary of his conversations with Speer. And and these added this line about how Hitler hated that whole agreement and was furious about it. And I suddenly thought, if I have a German character who travels with Hitler on Hitler's train down to Munich, and I have a someone who travels with the British Prime Minister. And it's perfectly plausible that these two young men, uh, in late 20s, about 30, could have been at Oxford together, just as Adam von Trott, the famous German resistance figure, was at Oxford with, with all these people like Isaiah Berlin. If I, if I, could then, I could then bring these two people together and the past plays, plays, the, plays its part and then meeting again in Munich, and that was the key that unlocked the novel. Really, after 30 years of thinking it would be nice to write about it, suddenly I saw these two figures as a way of, you know, being able to show Hitler and uh, Chamberlain and their their attitudes to the time. A decision that's been made for the film is that all the German characters are, of course, played by German actors and we get scenes in German dialogue. What do you think about that decision in bringing it to the screen? I think that's marvellous. I think that's one of the best things about it. You know, we've all got much more use now to subtitles because of, um, well, because of Netflix and because of the things we watch, Scandinoir and so on. It gives such immediate authenticity. The face is a little bit different. It's just, um, it just elevates it and makes it a much classier kind of production. And, of course, it's brilliantly played. The German actors are all stunning in it, I think, actually. So Munich does something that a lot of your books do in that it weaves a a fictional storyline around real historical events. Why do you find that to be an interesting or or maybe a useful way to approach historical fiction? Well, I mean, I've always been fascinated by uh, history and also, but I've greatly enjoyed creating characters and creating stories. And to meld the two... I think there is a great justification for that in literary terms and in historic terms in in that you can, if you have a character that a reader sympathises with and you go inside their head and you see what they're feeling, you kind of switch on a bank of responses in a reader that makes the experience much more intense. And you can do things, you know, when I wrote Munich, I, I have to look at things like the weather for instance. Uh, I like putting weather in my novels. It was hot, humid in in Munich at that time. And it was the Oktoberfest. It was the great beer festival. So the streets were full of umpar bands and women in skirts and, and men in lederhosen. You know, I'd never seen any historical account of Munich, which 
made that point, for instance. They used to, the, the band was playing the Lambeth Walk outside Chamberlain's Hotel. So, and if I, in this idea of traveling, traveling on Hitler's train, traveling on Chamberlain's plane, what was it like? It was bumpy and uncomfortable, certainly on the plane. Uh, you know, I can somehow take the reader into it. Then, of course, I need to invent a story that goes with it. And my rule there is just to try and invent something that could have happened. I would never, I hope, write a story in which something is simply impossible. So the story, the, the MacGuffin or the plot of Munich is plausible and might explain why Chamberlain, after the Munich agreement was signed, suddenly said to Hitler, can I come and see you tomorrow morning? Which is what he did, which, which all his staff were horrified and amazed when he suddenly said this. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, so I think it speaks to people in that way as well. What can you do to try and stop terrible things happening? Uh, what chance do you have? Um, what can your generation do? I think it raises all those questions. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. So let's talk about Chamberlain in a, in a little bit more detail. As you say, brilliantly played here by Jeremy Irons. And Chamberlain is, is a really controversial historical figure. And I think it's fair to say, as you mentioned earlier, you've got somewhat of a more sympathetic take on him. I wonder if you could explain a bit of the thinking behind that characterisation. Well, most of what we think about Chamberlain, because he looked so elderly uh, with his umbrella and his wing collars, I mean, he was an Edwardian figure, really, in the modern age, but one shouldn't be fooled by that. He was a tough character. I mean, to actually make those flights at his age in an unpressurised aircraft with bumpy landings and so on, uh, he, when he got out of the first flight, he said, don't worry, I'm tougher than I look, uh, he said to the ambassador meeting him. And that's what he was. And then Churchill acknowledged that too, that he was this kind of imperial pioneer sort of figure. And he was a dominant political figure in Britain. And he, in 
Munich really made Munich happen. I mean, it was his tireless efforts uh, that caused it to happen. So you've got a very dominating, driving character um, who's as determined and bent on avoiding a war as Hitler is on having a war. So the first thing preconception one should get rid of is the idea that he's somehow weedy. He isn't. He's a hard, he's hard. He's also vain and arrogant, and I think that he did think that he'd got the measure of Hitler and that they had a man-to-man relationship, whereas actually, although he disliked Hitler intensely, incidentally, thought he was a gangster, but Hitler despised uh, Chamberlain, and um, it's, Chamberlain really didn't quite get the measure of Hitler's uh, ruthless determination to have a world war, but then hardly anyone else did either. So... I wanted to portray a Chamberlain more sympathetically, more vividly than the kind of elderly kind of family solicitor figure that totters in and out of most dramas about Churchill, where he's a bit player. I wanted to show it quite differently. And, well, by God, we have at least done that, whatever else you may say. Alongside Chamberlain, of course, we do actually meet Hitler himself. What are some of the challenges or perhaps the sensitivities around portraying Hitler in in fiction and on screen? Well, it's very tricky. Um, My real crisis in writing the novel was the first time I had Paul von Hartmann, the German character, encounter Hitler. And uh, when he came in and he was in the room and I sort of actually had a, I actually stopped writing and made a panicky call to my editor who got caught the train and came down to see me, to talk me down off the ledge. And there are certain tricks that you can do, which I did, and which actually are repeated in the film. That is, you glimpse the figure in the distance, and then a little closer to, and then suddenly you see him. The advantage of a novel is you don't is, is you don't actually have to have an actor portraying Hitler. So, so, you know, you just write about him. I wanted to try and convey what Hitler was like to his associates or to a, to a, a, a junior foreign office official. That was, he spoke quite roughly, he swore quite a lot. He had a very salty, sarcastic humour, which I put into the novel and which they have kept several of those exchanges in the film. And I think in the film, although the actor doesn't look much like Hitler, I think his portrayal of Hitler is first rate. It's it's terrifying. It's unnerving, isn't it? Really? Yeah, he's like um He's like a gang boss, really, and um, he controls by um, unsettling everyone around him, which is which is what he actually did. And uh, so, I think that the if the focus of the film, in many ways, is the Chamberlain Leggett relationship, nevertheless, the relationship between von Hartmann and Hitler is also relationship between two generations and a senior leader and a junior figure is it's a counterpoint to it um, that comes over I think very well in the film I think watching it in 2022 it's hard not to be unnerved by that portrayal of of Hitler but of course one of the big issues that the the film and the book grapples with is the extent to which people in 1938 both inside and outside of Germany, should have seen what Hitler was capable of, should have seen what was coming. Do you think that people should have been more aware of of how dangerous he he could prove to be? Well, we were aware of it. I mean, you know, another point to make is that Chamberlain was spending, by 1939, 50%, half of government revenue was going on rearmament. So, I mean, you know, plainly, we knew it was... He was dangerous. But you have to, again, put yourself in a time machine and go back to that time when if you 
in the summer of 1938, um, Stalin had killed many, many millions of people, far more than the, than Hitler had, and was seen certainly by the conservative establishment in Britain as a far more menacing uh, figure. And uh, you know, the, the, it was inconceivable to people that there would be something like the Holocaust. I mean, there, there would be that there would be uh, Jewish people thrown out of jobs, treated as second-class citizens, encouraged to emigrate. All of that was seen and uh, uh, abhorred by the rest of the world. Uh, but the concept that they actually might try to murder every single man, woman, and child was beyond conception and imagining in 1938. So, you know, you we could see he was menacing. We knew he'd rearmed. Anyone who'd read Mein Kampf knew he talked about uh, building an empire in the east, and he had uh, a, a, a repulsive policy towards the Jewish minority in Germany. So yeah, we did have plenty of warning. Chamberlain thought, though, it was a bomb, and Chamberlain thought it might be possible to defuse it. And you have to bear in mind that it was less than 20 years since the end of the First World War, where 900,000 British men had been killed. And there was simply no appetite for fighting it again. And anything that could be done to try and stop it happening, if that meant that the Germans, two million ethnic Germans in Czechoslovakia should should go to Germany, fine, let's do it. And another word for appeasement is really peace process. How do we find the sources of the conflict and somehow try and disarm? So you would argue that we maybe need to reassess Chamberlain's appeasement deal, and perhaps it maybe wasn't such a failure as history's written it off as. Yes, I mean, I think a lot of academics, I'm not saying anything that they wouldn't um, agree with or know. Uh, there's, there's obviously some dispute about um, whether Chamberlain deliberately bought time. I don't. I think that he bought time, but that wasn't the primary function of the policy. The primary function of the policy was to uh, stop uh, a war. I certainly think that we are due a reassessment of that period of our history and that we can't just go on uh, taking the Churchillian interpretation of it and that Chamberlain, in his way, in, uh, was a scapegoat for people, a conveniently dead scapegoat in the war, and that a lot of blame has been put on him. But it may well be that without Chamberlain, we would not have been able to win the war when it eventually came. So, of course, here we're, we're revisiting the Second World War, and that's a, that's a subject that you've touched on many times in your books. Why do you think that audiences are still so fascinated by the Second World War? It's probably the single most dramatic event in human history. Um, the 12 years from 1933 to 1945 tell us so much about power and, and the terrible things that human beings are capable of. It called forth uh, uh, extraordinary heroism and bravery and terrible crimes. Uh, and really in that conflict, the modern world was forged and we still feel its effects now. I mean, we, you know, um, the European Union is a response to the Second World War, to uh, a desire to make it impossible for Western Europe to go back to war again. And our response to that uh, is still very much the 1940 standalone. It's not, you know, we shouldn't get entangled in it. And if you add to that all the technological things that happened in the war, the invention of the computer, Bletchley Park, atomic power at Los Alamos, rocket technology at Peinamunda, uh, you know, 
why, why wouldn't one be obsessed with it? I mean, I, I want to turn the question around, really. I can't understand why some, someone shouldn't be interested in something like that. Finally, what do you think that are some of the key strengths of this adaptation of your book, this new film adaptation? And what do you hope that audiences might take away from it? I think that it's very engrossing and immersive film. I think it's beautiful to look at. I think there are very, very good performances from the leading actors. And I think that Jeremy Irons is, as I said at the beginning, a kind of iconic Chamberlain. I think that the focus on the two young men humanises it. And I think there's a sense of a doomed generation for these two. We opened the film in Oxford at a ball and they... We, are, we know that they are stand on the edge of a world that is slipping over the edge of the abyss. And um, I think a lot of young people feel that too uh, when they see what's happening politically and in terms of the climate and so on. Uh, so I think it speaks to people in that way as well. What can you do to try and stop terrible things happening? Uh, what chance do you have? Um, what can your generation do? I think it raises all those questions. That was Robert Harris. The new Netflix film, Munich, The Edge of War, is available to stream from today. And Robert's book, which inspired the film, is called Munich and was published in 2017. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. (laughs) 